welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Today is July 4th, Independence Day, a federal holiday commemorating the adoption of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. The Declaration of Independence was a statement expressing the reasons the 13 colonies were separating from Great Britain. In addition to listing grievances against the king, the Declaration of Independence also asserted that men, and possibly women by implication, had natural and legal rights and included the well-known and off-sided words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At the time those words were written and spoken, the society did not in fact treat people as equal, especially Africans and those of African descent living in the colonies, most of whom were enslaved. Indeed, Frederick Douglass was born into slavery in February 1818, 42 years after this country declared its independence and acknowledged the, the unalienable rights of men. After multiple attempts, Douglass escaped from enslavement in 1838 and dedicated his life fighting to end slavery. In 1852, Douglass, when he was around 34 years old, was asked to give an Independence Day oration by the Rochester Ladies Anti-Society, Anti-Slavery Society. Douglas delivered a powerful speech titled, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Tonight, we're gonna to talk about the purpose and message of Douglas's Fourth of July speech and the meaning of the Fourth of July for African-Americans today. Joining us for this discussion, we have James Williams. He is, a, he is the former public defender for Orange and Chatham counties and chair of the North Carolina Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities in the Criminal Justice System. We also have with us Erica Wilson, professor of law at UNC School of Law and director of the Critical Race Lawyering Civil Rights Clinic. And we also have with us Tony Frazier. He is a professor of history here at NCCU and a Mellon HBCU fellowship recipient. Thank you all for joining us. So we're gonna jump right into it. Uh, but before we get into Frederick Douglass's speech, if each of you could share your thoughts about Frederick Douglass, his life, his, leg his legacy, uh, his ambitions, um, and James, why don't we start with you? You have spoken often about your admiration of Frederick Douglass. So what say you? Well, thank you um, so much, um, April and, and Irv, for having, having me on this, um, this wonderful program. 
you're right. Uh, Frederick Douglass um, is, is a lot of things to me. Um, and one thing uh, that he is, is an inspiration. And, and, um, and I think for me, that's very important because I look at what Frederick Douglass was able to do in the circumstances in which he was born into this world as an enslaved person on a plantation who didn't have any rights, who somehow, as you mentioned, after several attempts managed to escape. Uh, prior to that though, he had begun to learn to read, which was prohibited, uh, but he managed to do that. Uh, and then to uh, write one of the, what is considered, um, you know, the best, by most people, slave narratives, one of the best autobiographies ever, uh, you know, shortly after his escape. And so then he goes on to tackle this institution of, of slavery, one of the most intractable systems the world has ever known, and became a powerful voice, both orally um, and with the written word in trying to dismantle slavery. And he dedicated his life to that. And I think about all the bleak moments, all the dark days that he had to encounter, but somehow he managed to keep a belief and to keep hope alive and to keep up that fight. And so when I say he's an inspiration to me, you know, it's when we have these challenging moments and I think, wow, this is really tough. I think that to, to Frederick Douglass and how he managed to help galvanize, you know, a, a significant part of the population to do what many people thought was impossible. And that is to help bring down this, this uh, institution of, of slavery in this country. Thank you for that, Attorney Williams. Professor Wilson, you are a student of history. Um, and you no doubt have an understanding of, of Frederick Douglass and what he has meant to this country and his contributions. Uh, what do you think about when you consider the life and legacy of Frederick Douglass? Well, I'll have to say that I was first introduced to Frederick Douglass at a time uh, in my uh, elementary secondary uh, schooling when I needed <laughs> to see a Frederick Douglass. I had just learned about uh, the horrors of enslavement. I remember feeling extreme embarrassment uh, because the teacher, my fourth grade teacher said that we could do a report on wherever our ancestors were from. And then she looked at me and the other black student in the class and told us to pick any country uh, since we didn't know where our ancestors were from. And so when I went home and told my parents about that, I remember crying and I remember my dad um, introducing me to Fred Frederick Douglass really for the for the first time um, and uh, reading to me uh, some of his texts and telling me about him. So for me, Frederick Douglass um, is personal. Uh, it re represents a moment of sort of enlightenment in terms of uh, this is not my shame to bear regarding enslavement uh, and that uh, there were people like Douglass fighting very hard uh, against it. The other uh, thing that I take away from Douglas is that uh, the work that he did uh, with respect to 
women's suffrage um, in terms of being uh, at that convention uh, and speaking in favor uh, of including uh, women. Uh, and so that's not something that was particularly popular at the time. So that's actually one of my uh, favorite uh, Frederick Douglass moments, I guess. Thank you. And Professor Frazier, so, so you were the only one amongst us who actually has a PhD in history. So um, you, have, you have obviously studied and, and you've spoken on this show before about Frederick Douglass. Um, could you share your thoughts on, on the man for us? Yeah, it was interesting um, for, for tonight, you asked one of the questions about uh, the legacy. And uh, for me, I, I think the first time I read anything of Frederick Douglass was in a like an ebony history book. And actually he was talking about um, the war was over and what was, what was freedom to the uh, enslaved and how the country may forget. And, uh, and I remember as a teenager reading that, did not quite understand all the ramifications of that statement, but I have come to understand it certainly now. And when I think about Frederick Douglass, I think his life was an argument with America's conscience. I, I really have given a great deal of thought to that. It's an argument with America's conscience. He was always uh, one who insisted that we must advocate and agitate for oneself and for others. As uh, Erica and James have mentioned, uh, he fought for universal reforms, of course, anti-slavery, trying to abolish slavery, but uh, temperance and women's equality were things that were important to him. Douglas also, uh, and this sometimes uh, gets shaded out, he, he believed in the promise of America, but he preserved his right to fight for those ideals. And I'm always trying to remind uh, people to not box him in, uh, allow his views to adjust for the changing circumstances of his lifetime. Uh, he goes from enslaved, he goes to fugitive, he goes to abolitionist, statesman, keeper of memory. So when you read him, I'm often reminded, what, year, what is the year, what is the context of a certain speech? What are the larger forces surrounding that particular Douglas you were reading at that moment? People do change. And one of the challenges is allowing us to see his growth and change as well. I also think he really professed uh, Black Americans' detachment with the nation. At the same time, he was seriously concerned about the full integration into the body politic. Um, he was the most uh, photographed person in the 19th century. And that's an amazing uh, feat. Uh, so the length of his life in the 19th century from 1818 to 1895 uh, is very important. So he's, he's a very important figure for all of us and uh, his legacy uh, continues. And I actually think he would be uh, honored that we're having this conversation today. All right, thank, thank you all. Um, Attorney Williams, you mentioned that Frederick Douglass was a powerful voice both orally and in writing and that he, he had to teach himself to read. Can you talk a little bit about why it was that Douglas was even asked to give this Independence Day uh, oration? Like, why was he chosen? Well, you know, I think that you know, there, there are probably several reasons for that. Because, you know, one of the things that had happened by the time that he gave this speech, at least according to my reading and understanding, is that he had become a very learned person. And that's almost miraculous in and of itself when, you know, like I said, you know, for a, a fair a significant part of his youth, 
he was prohibited, prevented from even learning to read and, and write, but somehow he managed to do that, you know, with some assistance, with some trickery, um, and, um, and he mastered, he mastered the use of words, um, uh, writing, uh, and, and practically all of his major speeches were written. I mean, he, it was not, I'm sure on occasion he may have just given a spontaneous speech, but if he knew that he was gonna be given a speech, he put work into it. In fact, he said that he spent two weeks crafting this Fourth uh, of July speech. And so, so, the, you know, so you know, what I'm saying is that the people in Rochester knew him, the women who were hosting this event knew him, that knew of his oratorical skills, because by this time, he had given you know, other powerful speeches and he lived in Rochester. In fact, it's my understanding that he lived in Rochester for close to 20 years, longer than he lived in any other single place. Uh, and finally, I think the woman who was um, the head of this organization that invited him was a close friend of Douglas. Uh, I forget her name now, but I think she was from England. He had met her when he was on some speaking tour. She had come back had come to the U.S. at some point, had lived actually in the Douglas household and had helped him uh, keep his paper afloat and helped him, um, you know, financially. And so she uh, asked him to give the speech um, and he agreed to do so. One could question what he, well, you're the moderator. <laughs> One could question, you know, what he, uh, what, why did he accept? But, um, but I'm glad he did. <laughs> yeah, no, and that that's a that's a great question. And um, and before we get into the substance of of his speech, for, uh, Dr. Fraser, can you talk about these Independence Day orations? Right, these you know to celebrate Independence Day, these speeches were not uncommon. Why? What was the typical kind of celebration like in asking someone to give a speech? What typically was expected? Yes, um, to your point, you're quite correct. Uh, Independence Day uh, speeches were very important. They were uh, speeches that were often uh, laudatory of the nation's history. Uh, very, very, uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find any speech that was going against the grain in terms of what people felt about America. So for him to not only accept the speech and then to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, we'll talk about in a few moments how he put the speech together, but uh, to attack uh, in some ways and, and uh, recall from uh, these celebratory moments of Independence Day. Independence Day, as we all know, very important uh, part of American history. I mean, at the, at the very founding of 1776, but those speeches and, and that tradition was very important to uh, making a nation. And, uh, and Douglas is, is gonna challenge that myth-making uh, on this day in July 5th. Uh, we should note, you know, it's not July 4th, it's actually July 5th when he gives a speech. And there's a reason for that. He refused to do July 4th. Uh, he's in New York. Uh, in New York, there was a tradition in the African-American community dating back to July 4th, 1827. That's when slavery was abolished in New York. And African-Americans uh, maintained July 5th as the day for their emancipation day in New York as to not conflict with July 4th. So he told him I cannot do 
July uh, 4th, I can do July 5th in honoring tradition of African-Americans in New York. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Now, Attorney Williams had mentioned that uh, it was a friend who asked him to speak and um, his audience, let's try to get a sense of, of who his audience was and what they may have expected, right? So, so we know that he is um, a very well-regarded writer, speaker, orator. Um, he's speaking to a group that is uh, in line with his message. And he delivers this very powerful, uh, probably unexpected speech to uh, the audience. We're going to have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the message that was conveyed by Frederick Douglass um, and how that message resonated then, and also have an opportunity to talk about how that message continues to resonate today. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM, and we've been talking this hour with James Williams, attorney and chair of the North Carolina Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities in the Criminal Justice System, Erica Wilson, professor of law at UNC School of Law and director of the Critical Race Lawyering Civil Rights Clinic, and Tony Frazier, professor of history at NCCU and Mellon HBCU fellowship recipient. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. And thank you so very much for uh, staying with us here on this uh, 4th of uh, July. Uh, this is a uh, celebratory day for many, a day of reflection for, uh, for others. And we're talking about uh, the uh, 4th of July and uh, Frederick Douglass and his uh, speech uh, dealing with the uh, early commemoration and remembrance of the uh, 4th of July holiday and what is that, the meaning of that day uh, to uh, African-Americans. We have joining us for uh, this discussion, uh, James Williams, who is the chair of the North Carolina Commission 
on racial and ethnic disparities in the criminal justice system and the former public defender for Orange and Chatham counties, and Erica Wilson, who is a professor of law at uh, the UNC School of Law and is the director of the Critical Race Lawyering Civil Rights Clinic uh, there, and uh, Tony Frazier, who is a professor of uh, history at uh, North Carolina Central University and uh, presently is a Mellon HBCU Fellowship uh, recipient. And uh, we're certainly uh, waiting for him to uh, return to the campus from all of the activities in which he is engaged. Um, we were talking about the, uh, the, the I guess, the uh, surrounding, uh, the surroundings for Frederick Douglass's uh, speech. And you, you, you mentioned uh, uh, in our discussion uh, the role of uh, women, uh, mainly white women, uh, who were uh, supporters of uh, Frederick Douglass and the abolitionist uh, movement. Uh, Professor Wilson talked about uh, uh, Frederick Douglass's advocacy uh, for the abolition of uh, women and the empowerment of, uh, of, of women. And uh, so if we go back through the history, we will see that there is strong support for the abolition of slavery uh, from, uh, from women uh, throughout the uh, countries, particularly in the uh, North. But can you give a little uh, explanation or some uh, history to our audience about the audience that Frederick Douglass was speaking to uh, on uh, July 5th, 1852, and why was that the audience in which he was uh, addressing? So, uh, Professor Frazier, you want to start us off with that? Yes, yeah, certainly, Irv. Uh, the audience for uh, the 4th of July uh, speech of Douglas was uh, mostly uh, women abolitionists who had invited Douglas. And uh, I think uh, my colleague James will add a little bit more to this in a moment. But um, these uh, women abolitionists invited Douglas because Douglas was, you know, uh, perhaps the most famous and was gaining great traction as someone on the abolitionist uh, circuit as a speaker. He often talked about that he wore his diploma on his back. Uh, so uh, those bona fides coming out of slavery and being this great orator, which he had become and was becoming, uh, was an enticement for these uh, women abolitionists to invite him. Um, we know how strident the speech was. Uh, and I think uh, in some historical circles, it was understood that Frederick Douglass was gonna bring a certain uh, flair and fire uh, to this day. Uh, you think about the sentence where he says, uh, do you mean citizens to mock me by asking me to speak today? I mean, uh, he was already unfurling uh, thunderbolts early on within the speech with just a statement like that. Um, so that was the audience. Uh, and then I also think he was also not only speaking to the women abolitionists in front of him, he was speaking to the entire country. He knew that this speech would be read beyond uh, that podium uh, on that day, and it certainly was, and, and we're continuing to read it today. So he was talking to um, his contemporaries into the future. All right, uh, Attorney Williams. Um, I, I agree. Um, I agree with, um, with the professor. I, I think, um, I, I do, and I don't have, you know, any historical reference that I can point to, but I suspect that there were women within that audience while they 
expected and anticipated a moving and powerful uh, speech by Frederick Douglass. I find it hard to believe that they, there were not some of them who were a bit taken aback or surprised by how, how, how strident and some might say how provocative um, you know, that speech was. And, um, and so, so I, you know, I think there probably were a few of them who were feeling some level of angst uh, related to the speech, but they were people who supported you know, abolition um, and they knew that Frederick Douglass was uh, the premier, certainly orator, and uh, probably premier abolitionist on the circuit. Uh, and they had, I'm sure, heard some of his speeches before. They hadn't heard that speech before. Um, and um, boy, were they in for a treat. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I was always amazed uh, with Frederick Douglass. Uh, and his sense of, uh, of freedom that uh, although he was born enslaved and uh, on a slave uh, plantation, he made it a part of his mission to leave. Uh, that no matter what happened, he had it in his mind that he was bent on, uh, on freedom. And uh, so several attempts he had uh, he engaged in to uh, to escape, and he did. Uh, ended up ending up in uh, in Rochester, where he became a uh, national uh, figure. And we all know about the uh, Fugitive Slave Act, uh, which allows for the uh, allowed for the capture of uh, runaway slaves and their return uh, to uh, to their uh, their masters uh, by whatever authorities. Uh, were in place, and uh, and he he gave this provocative speech, in which he regularly refer referred to himself as a citizen. Uh, he talked about fellow citizens. Uh, uh, so, can you kind of talk about this uh, uh, this transition on his part to consider himself as a citizen? When, uh, in point of fact, he was uh, uh, born uh, as a part of a slave uh, community and was, for all practical purposes, on the run. Irv, I, I think uh, there's a bit of ridicule and sarcasm in his constant use of citizen at, at this moment. Uh, it's 1852. Uh, this is before Dred Scott. This is before John Brown's raid. It's, it's slavery is going full throttle. You do have the fugitive slave law. This is eight years before Lincoln's election, nine years before Fort Sumter. So in some ways, I think Douglas and his speeches are often uh, peppered with this type of sarcasm, sarcasm and ridicule. And I think uh, the use of that term uh, is a part of that. But I also think uh, there, there was some audaciousness about him. You know, when the narrative is published, uh, you know, that also had citizenship implications because he, he had a book contract and things like that. So uh, in many ways, uh, Frederick Douglass was already embodying challenges to the constitutional order of citizenship. Uh, if you want to look at it from that purview, uh, I tend to think he was uh, mocking uh, and using ridicule uh, with, within that speech with the use of citizen and, and the constant use of it. Uh, and uh, that's, that's where I stand at it, but uh, I definitely get your point about it though. Yeah, I, 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 I 
I like your uh, analysis uh, of that. You know, one other thing that kind of comes to mind too is one of the things, and you touched on a bit of it, um, one of the things I think that Frederick Douglass had, has been doing or had been doing was trying to show the world, and, and he did believe in human rights, not just civil rights, he believed in, the right, in, in human rights. And I think he was trying to show the world and certainly you know, people in the US that he as a black person was the equal of any white person and that uh, he was entitled to that respect. And that's how he kind of represented and presented himself. I mean, uh, you know, as, as, as you, you had, had said earlier, Professor Fraser, Frederick Douglass was the most photographed person of his time. And uh, one of the most photographed of all times, I guess, until modern times. But he, he always presented in a certain way. He was well-dressed, his hair was done, right? Uh, I mean, he was making a point that I am entitled to every right that any other person, any other American is entitled to. And, and maybe, you know, he, he could have been doing a little bit of claiming that right in that speech. I, I don't know. Well, James, to your point, there is, this, uh, you know, in, in honoring him and discussing the speech uh, this evening, we also should be reminded he's a celebrity. And, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, before celebrity was even, you know, really quite right. good. Uh, so he, he's able to shape his, his, mm -hmm. his history as well. I mean, he yeah. wrote his autobiography three times. Uh, that, that tells you something about how he, wants, he wanted to control his narrative as well. So That's right. even the photography uh, has been looked at as a way of him controlling his narrative as well. Yes. So, uh, there, so it's, not, it's not all um, without him trying to uh, also impose his own will on how he's going to be remembered as well. Mm -hmm. And, and Professor Frazier, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I recall reading that uh, there were many who thought that he was um, not being truthful about having been a slave because of the way he presented himself, because of the way that he spoke, because of the way that he, that he wrote. Yes, uh, you're, you're quite right, April. One of the reasons the uh, narrative is published uh, is to prove, uh, you know, without a doubt that this is who I am. And uh, a lot of times, even in other slave narratives, uh, publishing that narrative is a way of naming names. Uh, when he names places that he was born, former masters, uh, even being in England and uh, having his freedom purchased, uh, his masters like, you know, uh, I don't even want to talk about this, but yeah, I'll sell, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll complete the sale. Those are things that are, that are making his narrative legitimate. So that, that is also happening. People could not believe that he could speak this way. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, who he would later break with, but was always like, you know, could you could you tone it down a little bit on on on, on the English here? Uh, and he would not. And uh, so people had a hard time uh, accepting that he was legitimate. But the narrative and the uh, things that he talked about within the narrative proved to be correct. And history has certainly borne out uh, his his narrative is is true to it to him. Uh, of course, there, are, as I said, in terms of celebrity, in terms of shaping his own narrative, there'll be a few things in there that scholars have uh, questions about in terms of locations, but who he is is who he was. And uh, so, yeah, th those were legitimate. And those, and those things happened to a lot of uh, fugitive slaves who wrote slave narratives, this idea, can it be true? And one of the things you notice in the literature, uh, some historians have talked about this, uh, older generation historians, how, you, how those things get vetted. And uh, 
So you got to imagine an abolitionist society and all these great abolitionists that we've come to know, like William Lloyd Garrison and others, they're going to go through these items with a fine tooth comb because you don't want to be embarrassed. And at the same time, Southern uh, people who want to critique this, they're going to go through it with a fine tooth comb because they want to find the evidence. So uh, these narratives were, were, were uh, often vetted in, in these different kind of ways. And when you read his, uh, his, his speeches and his writings, uh, he was very, was highly intellectual, uh, very learned, uh, not only about the uh, history, but also about the uh, use of the uh, English language. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, a wordsmith yes. uh, that, uh, that, that, uh, that he did. And a lot of his, uh, uh, I guess, uh, notations or comments are relevant to us today. Uh, when we look at the situation that, uh, that, uh, that we're in, I'm, I'm reminded of this, uh, uh, without struggle, there is no progress. Mm -hmm. And uh, you may not get all that you pay for in life, but you will certainly pay for all that, uh, that you get. Uh, comments uh, made during the uh, 1850s before Dred Scott that have a particular meaning uh, today. So can you kind of talk about uh, just what are the uh, lessons that uh, that we should carry forth from the uh, Douglas's Fourth uh, of July uh, speech and his other writings and speeches that uh, that were made during that time? Irv, if you would permit me, uh, can we backtrack just a little bit uh, back back to the speech? Uh, I, I think um, I don't. I'm certain I don't want to read the speech to people because they can do that on their own. But uh, he says. What, what have I, those I represent, to do with your national independence? He presses, he presses on that point. He says, you may, you may rejoice, I must mourn. Uh, if you look at the speech, uh, the entire speech, and I think that's also important, uh, the speech is divided into you know, sections. And in the first section, some people may be miffed today if they really went and read the entire speech. He's praising the founders. And he's saying that the present generation has squandered what the founders were doing. Now, this is 1852. I'm quite certain if we go to 1860 and, and other locations, that may not be the case. Um, but uh, so he also says, um, he's the, in, in this speech, he's, he's discussing uh, the internal slave trade within the United States, some of the, some of the saddest uh, writings you will ever view from me about the internal slave trade. Uh, that took place within the United States. He's talking about the fugitive slave law. He's talking about religion. Uh, near the end of the speech, he's talking about the end of borders and technology, which allows uh, outside people to peer into the United States and see what's going on here. Uh, near the end of the speech, he comes back and he's talking about the existence of slavery and how that would damage the nation. And he says uh, this image of slavery as a as a parasitic beast that is lurking within America. He said, oh, be warned, be warned. A horrible reptile is caught up in your nation's bosom. The venomous creature is nursing at the tender breast of your youthful republic. For the love of God, tear it away. And we know 10 years later, uh, 600,000 Americans would be, be dead and the circumstances of black Americans would be changed forever because of the civil war. So this speech is, is, is just powerful. It's just a powerful speech. It's, a, it's American history right here in front of us. And uh, we would do ourselves well to read the entire speech. Uh, it's, it's, it's just that important. Uh, Irv, if we take a few more moments, he actually gave, uh, this is the most famous July 4th speech. I would advise us all to read his 1862 July 4th speech called the Slaveholders Rebellion. 
And then you have the 1875 July 4th speech, the color question, which is also, these are very important 4th of July messages from Frederick Douglass as well. Of course, they're taking place one, one year after the Civil War and one during what would be the eve of Reconstruction in some ways, or in the kind of the late, the late period of Reconstruction. So uh, I just want to point that out before, before I come back to your point. He, he is giving um, very important uh, messages, not only for his contemporaries, but I even think to your point, he's giving messages for, for our own time about not only uh, for me, uh, memory, what we should be remembering, what we, what we have forgotten, but at the same time, he's also uh, attacking uh, myth-making and challenging myth-making and allowing myths to take prominence over facts. And I think, I, I hope that comes back to your point that he, to me, he's challenging myth-making. Uh, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and uh, we're gonna have to take a break uh, right now where we uh, continue in our discussion about uh, Frederick Douglass and his uh, 4th of July uh, speech. Uh, we have uh, joining us uh, this evening, James Williams, who is the chair of the North Carolina Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities in the Criminal Justice System, and is the former public defender for Orange and uh, Chatham Counties. Uh, uh, Tony Frazier is a professor of history at uh, North Carolina Central University and is presently a uh, Mellon HBCU fellowship uh, recipient. And uh, Erica Wilson, who is the professor of law at uh, UNC uh, School of Law and is the uh, director of their critical race lawyering civil rights uh, clinic. So we're going to take our break right now. We're going to come back and continue uh, this uh, discussion and want you to stay with us uh, as we uh, wind down uh, the uh, many comments about uh, prison. We'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with our guests about Frederick Douglass and his famous July 4th speech. Speaking with us here in our Zoom studio is James Williams, attorney and chair of the North Carolina Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities in the Criminal Justice System and former public defender for Orange and Chatham counties, and Tony Frazier, professor of history here at NCCU and a Mellon HBCU fellowship recipient. 
We did have with us in our studio, Erica Wilson, who's a professor of law at UNC School of Law, but she has had technical difficulties, so she is not able to be with us. Um, she will no doubt be a guest on a future show. She's wonderful. So right before the break, uh, Professor Frazier, you were talking about some of the content of Douglas's speech, and Attorney Williams, we want to give you a chance to, I mean, the speech is, is uh, it's very lengthy. Um, it is broken up into kind of uh, stages, as um, Dr. Frazier mentioned, and we encourage everyone to read it. I have some of my favorite parts or, or, or portions of the speech that really kind of hit home and resonate with me. And Attorney Williams, if you had um, certain parts of the speech that you wanted to share with our audience, we wanted to give you a chance to do that. And then we will, as Irv suggested, bring it forward and talk about how we can utilize this speech today in our efforts to make sure that this country lives up to its promises. So, so uh, thank you. Um... Professor Dawson, I, you know, I, I don't think I do encourage people to read the speech also, and I encourage people to actually, you know, try to foster, you know, public readings, communal readings of the speech. I think that is a, a, a powerful way to not only appreciate Douglas, but also to, to help internalize the powerful messages from the speech. Um, and as far as the speech and and there's there's so much of it that resonates with me, and I, you know the the portion how he gives life to how he makes one uh, because we talk about oppression and how people are harmed from 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 racism and and racial injustice and the way he makes us feel the horror of it all. You know whether it's a fugitive slave running through the woods with dogs howling at his heels. Um, the fear, the anguish, uh, or you know, a, a mother uh, being separated from a child, his ability to use words to make us feel, uh, hear, uh, you know, sometimes even probably smell what is going on. To me, uh, you know, it and it's it's, it's so powerful. Uh, the way he takes, yeah, you know, this this these uh, religious institutions to task. Uh, for their false you know, beliefs in Christianity and, and, and using that to sort of justify one of the worst uh, systems uh, of, of oppression the world has ever known. I mean, that, I, that resonates with me. Um, and basically how he says to the United States, you know, there's nothing in the world that compares to how you are abusing uh, uh, and misusing you know, human beings here in this country. Uh, and he takes the, the country to task and says, you are the worst in the world. There's nothing to compare. But I don't think, I, you know, what I would like to take a, a moment or two and talk some about, because while this speech is critically important in terms of what is happening today, uh, you know, Douglas gave so many great speeches. Uh, and this is just one of those. I mean, when we look at where we are today, when we look at what's happening, we know that these recent um, attacks and threats on, uh, you know, Asian Americans. Well, guess what? Douglas gave a speech. I don't know what year, but certainly, you know, somewhere in the in the 1870s or 80s, 
called Composite Nation. And what was he talking about there? But that the United States, this country, needed to be more inviting in terms of people of all races and ethnicities. And particularly, he spoke about you know, the Chinese immigrants and that the country should allow them into the country and allow them to stay. This was Frederick Douglass uh, talking about the America, almost like the beloved community, but also talking about, you know, what, when we talk today about, you know, inclusion and diversity and all this sort of stuff, that's what Douglass was talking about in Composite Nation. His last speech, or last great speech that he, he gave, uh, the lessons of the hour, where he's talking about lynching and racial terror and policing and how you know, you know, the so-called criminal justice system was, um, you know, was, was dealing with black people. But he also talked about the suppression of voting rights and the right to vote and how that was being stripped away. Some of the same very issues that we are dealing with today. And this was just a year before his death. That speech I believe was in 1894. He died of course in 1895. So almost up until his dying day, he was fighting these battles. And let's remember this, he was only 13, he was only 36 years old when he gave this uh, July 4th or July 5th speech in 1852. He was a young man. Uh, and we don't think about that because most of us, when we think of Douglas, you know, we, you know, you know, we think of the older gray hair that, but he was a young man when he gave the speech that we're talking about today. So those are just a few points. So thank you for that. And um, Attorney Williams, you mentioned public readings. And so this, uh, at the airing of this show, this will be the evening of July 4th. And uh, Carborough, North Carolina, has been doing a public reading of this speech for uh, quite a few years. And Attorney Williams, I know you were instrumental in um, ensuring that that took place. And Lydia Lavelle, who's a professor here at NCCU School of Law, and also the mayor of Carborough, um, has ensured that that has happened for, I know it's been at least six, seven years. How this many will years? be the eighth year. Okay, the eighth year. And can you talk a little bit as we're, as we're going to be wrapping up here, the importance of um, folks today, both African-American, uh, people of all racial and ethnic groups, revisiting this speech. And, and we should mention that uh, there are still many who are not familiar with this speech. Why is it important that we revisit this as we are thinking about uh, our, our country, our society, and particularly this moment that we are in where there seems to be, where there is an attack on confronting the racism and the racial history of this country head on. Um, Dr. Frazier, let's start with you. Hey, yeah, um, I think this uh, speech still has resonance uh, to, our, to our current political uh, climate in many ways. Uh, Douglas is uh, pointing out uh, at this time, uh, we're, they're still enslavement, but he's pointing out as I said earlier, about the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, about the Constitution and how those uh, documents, which he, uh, he had uh, great hope in, and uh, in many ways saw that those documents should lead to the outlawing of slavery and the abolishment of slavery. So for him, uh, he would be uh, challenging uh, those of us who uh, 
see wrong, uh, to fight against it, to stand up against it. And he would be challenging uh, the orders of the day that seem like they are uh, winning. Uh, he, I think he would be reminding those who oppose uh, liberty and justice uh, for others. He would be questioning uh, whether we should be giving them the, the floor that we've given them. He's, he once talked about uh, not forgetting uh, those who fought for liberty and those who fought for slavery and those who fought for to save the Republic and those who fought to destroy it. Uh, he would be reminding us quite clearly uh, there, there is a right and wrong that took place in this country and uh, the right side should be uh, elevated, not the wrong side. And I think that's uh, in large part where we are uh, today, uh, where we are coming out of uh, a period of uh, insurrection and remain in an insurrectionist type mood uh, on the part of many people where the uh, nation professes uh, freedom, justice, and equality uh, to the uh, to the world, and uh, as uh, was occurring during Douglas's days, lying to the world about what was going on, and then uh, endangered uh, itself being exposed uh, to the horrors that were occurring uh, here within the United States, and it is exactly that situation that we're dealing with uh, today. Uh, and uh, so, and where do we go from here? Well, Irv, to your point, at the end, at the end of the uh, 4th of July speech, uh, he's talking about this uh, collapsing of borders, uh, that this technology allows, and to your point, everything can be seen now. And he's talking about that in 1852. Mm -hmm. So, and, and so uh, that's important. Uh, where do we go from here? Uh, it's, it's a very important statement you make. Uh, I'm one who, uh, looks at the past and try to make sense of the present by looking at the past. Uh, cannot be with someone who predicts the future, but certainly uh, I'm one who thinks that we should uh, study uh, history. We should uh, allow it to help us inform the present. We're certainly not going to uh, go back to history to live there, but I think it's an important guidepost for us. And, uh, and we have to continue to challenge uh, things that are, that, are, that are wrong. We have to challenge that. Uh, can't have peace with you know, and just say it was just we're just gonna forgive and forget and just have peace because we notice that peace allows others to just do what they want to do. Uh, I'm I'm struck by um, the fact that we're talking about the Fourth of July speech of Douglas. Uh, I think it gets forgotten that in in during and after the Civil War, in in Southern uh, white culture, there wasn't too much celebration of the Fourth of July. Uh, I think Augusta, Georgia, in 1875, had one of the first. Uh, 4th of July celebrations and Alexander Stevens would speak at a celebration in 1876. So when you see the nation coming back together, uh, southern, southern and northern, it is, it is around the 4th of July in some of these southern regions that the nation is brought back together culturally. So we, sh we should be forewarned about these memories of celebration and, and thinking that there was always uh, this kind of harmony. And oftentimes these coming together north and south meant the exclusion of black citizenship and the exclusion of black people and they're right. So it's, we're, on a, we're on a very dangerous and treacherous ground, I think. One thing that uh, along those very same points is, is in one of his speeches or one of his writings, Douglas basically says that, uh, you know, uh, if, if war between the whites brought us, the us being black people, freedom and rights, what will peace between the whites bring us. 
You own it. So he was laying it right out there because he saw <laughs> he saw what was likely to happen, and sure enough, um, sure enough, it did. Um, you know, if, if I could make one other comment about Douglas, and not so much. Well, it is about the speech because one of the things that really impresses me about the speech is how he, and, and not just this speech, but a number of his speeches, his analytical ability, his willingness to put in the work. And as a result, I mean, as it relates to struggle and what we need to do as a people and as a nation, you know, putting in that serious work, analyzing uh, the structures and what we need to do to get us from where we are to where we wanna be. And then, connecting to a movement or movements. Uh, and that's what, you know, Douglas, you know, I mean, he was a part of, of this abolition. It wasn't just Douglas himself. He no. was part of a movement. Yes. And I think if we're going, that's another lesson that we can learn from Douglas, uh, the man. Uh, he recognized that you couldn't do it alone. You know, you got to be a part of, of a bigger effort. And he was put, he was pushed by those to the left of him and those to the right of him in, in, mm -hmm. in the African-American community. He, he was not yeah. there on his own. He, uh, yeah, he, he took some hits and, uh, That's right. it was not like he was just sitting around talking and nobody said anything back. Yeah. Yeah. And, right. and people were constantly uh, consulting with him Yes, about what it was that they were doing and what they needed to do, whether they were on the left of him or on the right yes. of him, mm -hmm. as long as they were in the, uh, in, 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 the, in the movement, uh, right. recalling John Brown and his consultations uh, with him right. uh, before he uh, uh, met his Waterloo. Several, uh, several consultations. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes those consultations took place uh, in secrecy. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think the last conversation he was trying to stop him from going to Harper's Ferry, it felt like it was a fool's errand. Yeah. Um, but this is a uh, monumental moment. Uh, for us as we move from Juneteenth just a couple of weeks ago yes, uh, where we were talking about again uh, that uh, suppressed history uh, right. that uh, flourished up and uh, how we uh, remember uh, how that uh, history has been uh, suppressed to today uh, where there's this ongoing attack on critical race theory as if that is an enemy uh, rather than as a method of analysis uh, for uh, where, where we've been and what uh, this country has done uh, to, uh, to African-Americans. So uh, let me just throw the question back out again as we hit our waning uh, minutes. Where do we go from here? Well, Irv, I think you just went there. And, and, I, think <laughs> Douglas, and I don't know, but I think Douglas would be right there with you because it's about this controlling this, this uh, argument over the past and this narrative and, and this, whose narrative is gonna dominate and, and which narrative is gonna reign supreme. Uh, we, we think about think about the war and, and, and the way the Civil War, uh, what the Civil War was about. And, and, and we're running around uh, getting caught up in uh, all, all different kinds of, uh, of arguments, but the war was about slavery's end and about black equality. <laughs> I mean, the, the result of the war was black equality. And for that brief period of reconstruction, there was a moment that looked like the nation was gonna honor its ideals. And then it was torn asunder uh, with white backlash and, and, and those things and taking back the vote and Hayes, Till and Compromise and all those things that weaken. And the federal government's retreat from uh, support of African-Americans where the federal government had basically stepped in where the states would not do their 
duty uh, in terms of rights for African-American citizens. So I, I think Douglas would, would be right there with you in terms of about how is this narrative of the past is gonna be told. And if we think about it, uh, African-Americans were, ex you know, they wrote histories, let's be clear about that. But the dominant narrative excluded that history. And uh, now we're talking about well, whose history is going to be taught. Well, it's, it's American history, and it's going to be infused and, and interconnected with African American history. So, you know, one of the things that I uh, I think, you know, at this moment, at this time, that Douglas would be very uh, both concerned but engaged, and and would like to see us engaged on in a significant way is this attack on on suffrage and voting rights. And because mm -hmm. for Douglas, the right to the ballot was a necessary and absolutely necessary uh, 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 key to the protection of any and other all rights. And he, he constantly referred to that, you know, in his writing and his speeches. And I think he would be rightfully concerned about what is happening you know, both in this state, but really to, to a certain extent across the country in the attacks on the, the right to the ballot. Um, I think he would be impressed with the vibrancy, uh, maybe not all aspects, but, the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and young people, younger people, you know, being engaged in an effort to try to build a better society. I think he would support uh, that that effort, he might would offer some sage advice, but I don't think he would be bothered by the energy because you know, it's consistent with his agitation speeches and things of that nature. And so, um, so I think he would support that effort, um, you know, in that in that regard. Well, thank you both for this engaging and, and enlightening discussion. Um, we hope our listening audience uh, has had an enjoyable. Fourth of July, and that you use this as an opportunity to um, read the speech if you have not yet read it, to think about the history and to think about the promise of this country and what we can do to make sure we move closer to that. Our guest, James Williams, attorney and chair of the North Carolina Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities in the Criminal Justice System and former public defender for Orange and Chatham counties. Tony Frazier, professor of history at North Carolina Central University and a Mellon HBCU fellowship recipient and Erica Wilson, professor of law at UNC School of Law and director of the Critical Race Lawyering Civil Rights Clinic. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagle.review at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.